Hey everyone, welcome again to the Bat-Ass Podcast, the Batman the Animated Series show podcast where we talk about Batman the Animated Series. My name is Clay McCormick and with me as always is Sean Murphy. Sean, how you doing? How you doing, man? You know, before we start, I actually, I have to apologize. I'm very good at what I do. No one gets, you don't get that from the very first part of the episode, do you? <laughs> I have no idea what you're talking about. <laughs> Shit. <laughs> oh, man. We can restart this if you want, but... Uh, when uh, Ubu first attacks Batman in the Batcave, Raish's line is, I'm really sorry about Ubu. He's really good at what he does, which makes no sense. Oh, okay. So then it fits then, because that didn't make any sense to me. <laughs> it wasn't my line. Blame, blame Jenny O'Neill. <laughs> I'm saying you delivered it with the spirit of the original. Oh, so, I see. Yeah. yeah. Anyway, yep. so uh, yeah, today we're talking about the two-parter uh, introduction of uh, Raz al Ghul, or Raish al Ghul, depending on... Mm-hmm. It, uh, this the show says Raish, the movies say Raz. Who's to say? Um, Demon's Quest Part One and Two, and uh, yeah, we'll take a quick break and we'll get into that. Demon's Quest Part One, written by Denny O'Neill. Directed by Kevin Altieri, and in that one, when Robin is mysteriously abducted from his college campus, Batman begins a fruitless search until he is astounded by the sudden appearance in the Batcave of Rachel Ghoul. Raish quickly reveals that his reveals that his daughter Talia has been abducted under circumstances similar to Robin's, suggesting that the same people are responsible. So begins an uneasy truce between Batman and the Demon. And in the second part, which is story by Denny O'Neill and Len Wein, teleplay by Len Wein, <clears throat> after freeing Talia from her father's clutches and escaping from an avalanche, while well, they really assume that you figured out the, the uh, ending between the two of them there, uh, Batman and Robin follow, out the, follow the only clue they have, the ward Orpheus. After discovering that Orpheus is Raish's private satellite that will orbit over the Sahara, the duo travel to the Demon's Desert Stronghold. There, Batman learns that the satellite is actually a weapon which will explosively destroy all the Lazarus pits <clears throat> simultaneously throughout the world, destroying all life that exists. Uh, part one is a direct adaptation of Daughter of the Demon from Batman number 232 for in uh, 1971 and The Demon Lives Again, Batman 244, September 1972, both by Denny O'Neill and Neil Adams, famous for introducing Rachel Ghoul. The second half is also a direct adaptation of both of those comics. Okay, I didn't need to read that twice. Anyway. Uh, yeah, I'm actually glad to know that they're based off of comics because that explains why these two episodes don't really have much to do with each other. Even right. Though they try to convince you that they do. Yeah. Um, I I would be really interested to know. I, I guess it's a split between those two issues because it's batman 232 and 244 Mm -hmm. that's like almost a that's almost a year between each other Mm -hmm. uh from and they're both rachel ghoul issues um so i don't know exactly what they're pulling from uh from one and what and what they're pulling from the other yeah um but yeah these two episodes are are, are really weird because they it surprises me actually that they're saying it's taken from two separate issues only mm-hmm. because between the two these two episodes I feel like the first episode moves really 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 fast 
Mm-hmm. They just like cycle through a whole bunch of stuff. And then the second yeah. second episode is a little bit slower. Um, mm-hmm. So it feels like it could have been part of the same story, but they needed to have the break happen at a very specific point, which is the reveal of Rachel yeah. Ghoul as the bad guy. So they had to shuffle through the first half as quickly as possible. And then mm-hmm. the second half is it's a little bit more uh, 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 laid back. Yeah. I... I don't. I remember as a kid liking these two episodes. Mm-hmm. I don't like them now. I was really disappointed and surprised by how much I was not enjoying them. Mm. Uh, I, I like the. Uh, I think the guy that does Raish is amazing. I think Raish is a character is well animated. The whole thing is well animated. Great action scenes. Um, different kind of episode than you normally get. Like I do appreciate the stuff that the episode is doing well. Especially love the uh, the score, the, the music, mm. and it is very Lawrence of Arabia. Yeah, definitely. Um, but like I don't get why they had to go through all this trouble. Why why Raish would kidnap Robin and pretend to kidnap his daughter just to put Batman test him through this gauntlet just to see if he was worthy? Um, I just don't know what that really gets you. And I know it's based off a comic, and maybe back in the 70s that was enough, but I don't know. I'm just not into it. Mm. Well, it's kind of this weird, uh, twisted Willy Wonka story, isn't it? Where you've got Rachel Ghoul, who's at the end of his life after 600 right. years, and he's uh, trying to give the keys to the candy factory. Um, uh-huh. I'm not sure whether the candy factory is in reference to the League of Assassins or his daughter in this case. Or his daughter. His um, daughter's candy factory. Yeah. But, uh, uh, <laughs> you know, he's he's... Putting, putting Batman through the paces to see if he's worthy of, of taking this thing over. And yeah, yeah, it just it feels like a long way to go uh, for yeah. that particular ham sandwich. Yeah, I agree. Um, and I don't... Oh, one, one question I have before we go any further. Is the League of Assassins mentioned in this? Did I miss it? Um, I honestly don't remember. I... I would like to think that it is because that's sort of his thing, but right. it's possible that it's not. Yeah, I don't know why. In in the first episode with uh, well, that ended with Rachel Ghoul, um, it was Vertigo, I think it was, and it had Talia yes. in it and all that stuff. Yeah, and they were fighting against the League of Assassins. So I know that they established them in this universe. I thought that Raish was involved with the League of Assassins, but I don't think that. If he is, they certainly didn't make it clear in these two episodes. And it makes a lot of sense for him to be connected to this stuff because he has a bunch of henchmen all around the world. He's got a bunch of secret bases and buried in mountains and all that stuff. He has a satellite. Like, why wouldn't you say to Bruce, I want you to take over as me. I want you to jump in the pit and live forever. And then you can use all these assassins and all of my money and my infrastructure to keep it going. Because at least that would, I don't know, that would... That seems like it would be kind of tempting for Batman. Is he right. could be Batman forever, and you have all these assassins, which suddenly would be doing good things instead of bad things or whatever. Yeah, for for as for as much of a genius as Rachel Ghoul is made out to be, he doesn't really yeah. take a very smart approach to try and convince Batman he should take over for him. Right. It's, yeah, even though he's designed to have this sort of old school chivalrous uh, way of looking at things. Uh, that doesn't even explain why he goes through all these strange hoops just to do whatever he's doing. Yeah, because like if, if you're getting to the point that you think that Batman is going to take over, could could take over for you, you would yeah. think that you would already be past the point where you know can he defeat a panther if he's locked in a room with a panther? 
You know, like I feel, I feel like at that point, at that point, you know he's capable. You know what he's capable of, and so yeah. the trick is now how to convince him that this is yeah. the way to go, not to like put a gun to his friend's head and say, "You take over for me now, or I shoot him." <laughs> yeah, that's not going to convince anybody of anything. Yeah, I mean, if Batman's not worthy, then who the hell else would be? Honestly, you've got a right. billionaire who's got a secret identity, who's single-handedly trying to save, you know, whatever it is. Uh, yeah, I feel like he should have just come to Batman and offered him the job. In fact, I think episode one should just be completely redone and make it more about the backstory of Rachel Ghoul as Batman investigates him. And you can even go through history and see Rache, um, you know, I don't know, surviving different time periods and then finding each Lazarus pit one after the other, you know, building his infrastructure, whatever it is. That would have been, for me, like, one way to approach episode one so that when you get to episode two things are explained a lot better yeah yeah if if i were i would say i think part of my problem is is how rushed the first half feels and i think what might have been a better angle is because they're trying to uh race is trying to keep up the charade for for a while you know uh, mm-hmm. and, and it's pretty clear from the get-go that obviously he's the guy behind it, even if you've never seen the episode before. Um, I Spoilers. wish, yeah, I wish <laughs> that they hadn't revealed him so early. So I wish that in sort of like a Yoda thing in Empire Strikes Back where it's like he gets this thing that Robin's been kidnapped and so has this other, this other woman that he knows of. So then he has to go on to try and capture or get them back. And on this mission, he runs into this person who, when he meets him, is playing the aggrieved father or whatever. And then it turns out that, oh, no, this guy is Rachel Ghoul. He put the whole thing together, et cetera, et cetera. So when mm-hmm. you've got Rachel Ghoul acting uh, undercover, for lack of a better term, you can have him uh, working Batman to try and... Uh, working Batman like from an intellectual point and an emotional point to try and get him to when he finally offers him the job you've already worked on him mentally to a point where you think maybe he would come around to it instead of okay. instead of just so like he he's still going through all these these trials and stuff these physical trials but he doesn't know Raish is behind it um and so and Raish being the unassuming victim can sort of work him from the uh, mental side while he's being worked from the physical side. So when you get to the end where he reveals himself, he's like, you know, then he can kind of lay it out for him. That way it's just, it's a little bit more of, uh, it's a little bit more intriguing, but I think that takes a lot more time to do. Um, And, you know, you got 30 minutes, you got to establish who this guy is as quickly as possible. I was, I was surprised how fast he shows up though. He just like. Just walks into the back. Yeah. He's like, he walks out of the background. Like he's been there for a while. Like was he waiting yeah. for Batman to come home? Did he get there early with Ubu and just be like, let's just let's just stay in this corner, right, until he gets home at six a.m. Yeah, I feel like there could have been more interesting ways to introduce Rachel Ghoul in this. Yeah, I do like that he figured out who Batman was because not only does he have his daughter's description, but he looked at a bunch of receipts and figured out yeah. what billionaires <laughs> on the planet were ordering <laughs> things that bat like things like batarangs. Yeah. Yeah, he does. <laughs> Let he me does see. Little... Who, who ordered a bunch of batarangs from Amazon? He... Bruce Wayne. Wait a minute. And he never <laughs> threw that bat-themed party he was saying he was ordering them for. <laughs> I know. Yeah, he, he does like he does the minimal amount of legwork it would take to figure out that Bruce Wayne is... Let's see that Bruce Wayne or like 
the Gotham City equivalent of Bill Gates or or one yeah. of those guys, and it's like, no, it's probably right. going to be Bruce Wayne. Or a big, giant Batman fanboy who just likes to pretend he's Batman. Right, right. Which I guess is kind of what Bruce Wayne is anyway, you could argue. <laughs> yeah, I guess. Well, it depends how they write him, because sometimes they write him as someone who's who's against Batman. Uh, some you know, it's a, but but yeah, he's generally like, well, I heard Batman was pretty cool. <laughs> um, I feel like them, like getting Robin in his dorm room is a little, it's a little funny. It is. It's like, really funny. It's pouring I, rain out. Really well animated. It's super dramatic. Robin goes back into his dorm room, dressed as Robin with a grappling hook or whatever, and then he's taken out by three guys who are creepily waiting in the corner again of the wearing masks. That's like, what they do. It's like they get there and they're like, now we shall wait in the storm room for, I don't know, an hour or two. We'll give them two hours and then, we, then we're bouncing. It's like, you think you're bored now? Wait until le- tomorrow. We have to wait in the Batcave for two hours yeah. until Bruce Wayne shows up. <laughs> We've been here for guys- a long time. I can't wait to shoot this kid. <laughs> who brought the trail mix? I'm hungry. <laughs> You can't eat through yeah, that. Like, you can't eat through that. Uh, that. Uh, that mask, though. That yeah, Osiris mask. Yeah. You can't. It's like uh, uh, dark helmet in uh, spaceballs. Yes. You have to like tip it through the mouth hole. Yes. <laughs> you know, I want to go. If I, I don't know. If I was directing this series and I heard about this episode and what it was going on, I would go into the the meeting and be like, "All right, guys, listen. I know you want to do a James Bond, Deanna Jones thing. You got a lot of ideas for action pieces, and you definitely want to work in Rachel Ghoul and have him like offer his empire to Batman. That's the stuff we need to keep. But Jesus Christ, you need to get rid. Of, you need to fix the first episode here. Mm. You need to take a look at like who the why is Talia so fucking weird? Like, does she she loves Bruce? Yeah, but she's happy to watch him die. And there's this weird like he reminds her of her father type thing. And then at the end, Batman kisses her. Like, how does that make sense? Yeah, and they they go. We've seen her once before this, and she was uh-huh. like sort of sultry and cool and sort of Catwomany and stuff. And in this and yeah. this one, she's just like head over heels in love with Batman, which yeah. I don't know why that's the case. She's massively underpowered here. Just, yeah, you know, feminism would hate this episode. I mean, obviously, Raish is a very sexist character, um, but Talia doesn't do much to do to I me. Mean, she even says so when Reich goes into the Lazar pits and comes out, he he's temporarily insane. She allows him to like pick her up <laughs> and delay between two episodes until she finally smacks him in the face. She's mm-hmm. like, "Oh, don't worry, this always happens." Like, really? Why don't you just get a baseball bat and every time he comes out of Lazarus pits, you just knock him around for a bit yeah. until he remembers and who also, he is? Also, the Lazarus pit thing—they're like, "Up, oh, he's got—he's completely insane." The Lazarus pit drives you completely insane, and then then all mm-hmm. she does is like shake him fairly yeah. lightly and he's like oh oh sorry i, I don't know what oh, came over thanks. me yeah yeah so then the pit it will kill you if you're not dying if you're about to die it'll save you yes okay until yeah. the end of the I'll, episode I'll leave that alone it's a kid's show yeah, until the end of the episode where they break that rule by dropping a full uh Ray al ghoul return to full health back into the lazarus pit yeah but i mean yeah uh, There's so many questions that this raises, you know? Yeah, the Lazarus Pit has always been a big question mark as far as <laughs> what it can and can't do. And Yeah. Um, but, but yeah, uh, t- speaking of Talia, it, it, it's I was surprised at her characterization because I know in the comics that's kind of her deal is that she's, you know, in love with Batman. Mm-hmm. But I don't – I never got the feeling that she was in love with Batman like a high school girl is in love with someone. 
or like yeah. you know i always assume i always thought of it more like a a we are equals and that's why we should be together kind of thing um right. and i in this one i was kind of the, the the way i probably would have played it is i would have had talia be very upset that this was happening to her because her mm. father is pulling this you know chauvinist bullshit trying to uh turning her into a damsel in distress in order to hand over the keys to the kingdom to batman whereas Mm -hmm. talia is very capable and she should be mad that he's not handing over the keys to the kingdom to her yeah and so then at the end of your episode two after you've had them butt heads in x y and z she falls in love for lack of a better term with batman because she sees that he is her equal that kind of thing yeah, uh, so works. you can kind of you can build it that way instead of turning her into just like a prop. Yep, that works too. I, uh, you know, I was looking at other reviews too because I was just curious if I missed anything. So I looked at Tor and uh, AV Club, and mm-hmm. they were both very generous to this episode. I was pretty surprised; like they gave it like a minus equivalent. Wow. And uh, yeah, I'm like, what episode were you guys watching? Because normally, I my opinions of episodes generally line up with those websites, but yeah. this one, I was like. No, like they really love the sword fight in the end. The shirtless sword fight got a lot of points. <laughs> yeah, I mean, if anything, get that shirt off of him f- sooner. Yeah. The they... amount of disguises Batman wears in this, like he wanders around without a shirt for most of the episode when he can easily dress up like one of the henchmen and disappear again. You <laughs> yeah. Know? Yeah, I thought the the the, uh, the uh, disguise thing was really funny because I assumed when he gets captured at the end, he's in disguise as one of the... Uh, uh, the henchman there. I assumed it was going to be one of those things where Rachel Gu was like, "Ah, I see you've. I knew you were here the whole time, Batman." And then they pull the thing off. But no, he doesn't know it's Batman until they pull the mask off of him. He's, right. he's acting as though like one of his henchmen just decided to get a conscience or something. And then they yeah. pull the mask off. And he's like, "Oh, I had no yeah. idea it was Batman." <laughs> yeah. You know, while we've been talking, I've been thinking about what I would do with uh, Raish al Ghul mm-hmm. if I had to do a, a Raish comic. And uh, off the top of my head, I thought, I love the idea that he's ancient. Ancient Egyptian, whatever. I know he's got the Fu Manchu thing, so maybe he's, you know, from certain parts of the Middle East. I don't know, wherever. You yeah, know? just to solidify the uh, stereotype, yeah. sure. So let's say the Lazarus Pit is a thing. <laughs> let's say that it was worshipped by his ancient civilization, and uh, they didn't have science back then so they didn't know what the hell it was and he was some kind of a king or whatever and then he got really unhappy with um the kingdom and what they were doing to nature so they he decided to destroy the civilization Mm -hmm. and thereby protect the secret of the lazarus pit and he is the only one that really knows about this pit and after that he goes around the globe um finding new and new sorry more and more lazarus pits and building the league of shadows and you know, being in charge of the whole operation. He never allows anyone to test it. He has like a religious belief in it that this is like the nectar from the earth and this 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 keeping me alive because it wants me to stop mankind and end this virus called humanity, like that sort of thing. Mm-hmm. Um, and then like he destroyed the ancient civilization in the past, he now wants to destroy this new civilization, which is the world that we know today. Mm-hmm. And Batman gets wind of this plot and tackles it like that. Like, that's kind of the direction I would go. Um, but, yeah, they didn't do anything close to that. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, you know, I've always been kind of iffy on him as as a character. Because, like, he's, he's one of those characters that I think is, is better in 
uh, concept than when you really get to the nitty gritty of what he's about. Because I actually yeah. didn't even realize that he had this. Uh, I mean, first of all, his plan is the same plan as, or I should say his goal is the same goal as Thanos in, in the Avengers movies, where he wants to eliminate yeah. half of all life on Earth, uh, yeah. I guess. Yeah, literally. Yeah. Um, and he has a, he counted out a number too, like did the research and he literally says like 3 billion, 499 yeah. in one, in one baby. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and I find him, I, I, I didn't realize he had this, uh, return the earth to its, uh, natural state yeah. thing. And mm-hmm. I don't really know if I, if, if that's, I, I like the way that they handled him in Batman Begins quite a bit. Mm-hmm. Where uh, the League of Assassins or the League of Shadows or wh- whatever it is, is uh, an agent, sees themselves as an, as an agent of progress where they right. they have to, when essentially when an empire gets too too big for its own britches, they have to go in mm-hmm. and destroy it in order to to make sure that the uh, uh, it can build itself back up and like doesn't, I don't know, destroy humanity. That's more, shit. yeah, that's more plausible for sure. Yeah. And yeah. I, I just, I, th- I find that more interesting. Um, yeah. Because I think uh, Rachel Gould works better as like you, when you see him, he's got a lot of presence, and he's mm-hmm. when when anytime they reveal him as being like the mastermind bef- behind something, it always works for some reason because he's mm-hmm. got this like gravitas to him. But yeah. when you re- yeah when you kind of dig into what he's about, it's 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 kind of I don't know it's it's essentially like poison ivy with a with a with a sword. Yeah, no, he does have a lot in common with Poison Ivy. I mean, there's two Rachel Ghoul takes. There's the one that you just talked about, which is the League of Assassins guy, and then you have this eco terrorist type guy, uh, which is a lot like you know Poison Ivy. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I was actually wondering if they had ever teamed up because I feel like if they really got their shit together and they really wanted to do this, you know, take over the world, destroy mankind, and let's give the planet back to the trees, they could probably give it a good shot you know yeah yeah i assume they must have crossed paths at some point um he she's uh, a woman so he would there's no way he'd want to you know acknowledge her her power i guess yeah i guess that's the thing that he he wouldn't want to work with her to begin with (laughs) but uh yeah he he originally was uh, first appeared in batman number 232 which is what this episode was um based on yep and uh, yeah, his his he's an international mastermind, criminal mastermind whose ultimate goal is a world in perfect environmental balance. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I just never realized that was his thing, and it kind of yeah. it kind of bums me out a little bit because I having. Well, let me ask you a question. It's so this arch. Gonna, let me let me ask you a question that will get you. You can dive into your flat Earth stuff because I think there's a connection here. Mm-hmm. Um, so he was created partially by Neil Adams, correct? Sure. Neil Adams is uh, not a flat earther, but a... No, he's the opposite. It's a shrinking earth? Expanding earth. Expanding earth, I believe, okay. yes. What Do you know what that means? I don't. Uh, I don't know. <laughs> I'll tell you. I went... The, one of the, the first... <laughs> oh, God, I probably shouldn't you, tell Wait, you talk. I'm going to look it up, and that's the way I can give listeners something to uh, the, see if I can find some. The first comic book convention I ever went to was a, uh, a show in New York, Big Apple Comic Con. And uh, I was just walking around with a friend of mine, and we went to. They were doing a a discussion, a sit down discussion with Neil Adams and Frank Miller, and so we both went to that, and it was awesome. And you know, they talked for a while, and and it was a great conversation. And then I, as, when it was over, the moderator said, "Hey, uh, you guys, don't go anywhere. 
Neil wants to show you guys a video. And I was like, oh, cool. I mean, this must be something new that he's working on. Maybe it's some new artwork or something. And uh, it was not. It was a video all about the expanding Earth. And I think I made it maybe like two or three minutes until we bounced out of there. I gave, I gave it a shot. But it was yeah. just, it was, uh, it was a weird thing to pull on a captive Comic-Con audience. So the expanding Earth, uh, so you know how we have continents, right? Sure. You know the continents kind, kind of fit together like puzzle pieces? Sure. Uh, well, Pangea, in this theory, used to cover the whole planet. It was all one big, solid landmass. Mm-hmm. And as the Earth, as the oceans and the Earth below the continents expanded, all the continents started cracking and turning into islands and then pushing apart from each other. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's a photo uh, on Wikipedia that's actually really helpful. But uh, does that make sense? Yeah. What I'm describing yeah. here? All right. So I guess my question is, because Ra's al Ghul, created by Neil Adams, who has who thinks that the Earth is expanding... Part of Raish's backstory is this Lazarus pit, which comes from the earth. Mm-hmm. And it has to do, like, when the sun and the... There's a line in the in the episode where he's going to blow it up exactly when the sun and the moon align because the gravity is going to be at its strongest in one direction or something like that. Sure. There seems to be a lot of stuff in th- this dish <laughs> that seems to be very <laughs> Neil Adams-centered. I'm wondering if any of his beliefs in the expanding earth have anything to do with how... Rachel Ghoul was created. Oh yeah, I have no idea. I mean, maybe some of that stuff sneak snuck in there. I don't know when he first started to subscribe yeah. to the or ascribe to the uh, the expanding Earth model. Yeah. Um, but I it, that was the other thing I didn't realize about him is how Bond villainy he is. Like I uh, Neil Adams or yeah. uh... <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, when you go when you see him at a convention, you have to pass through a series of trials to get to his table. So kind of, That's true. <laughs> um, but no, the uh, uh, Rachel Ghoul, he's he's very Bond villain, and and he's got this really kind of arch uh, I, idea that that it's it would sound great being told to James Bond while he's strapped down to a, a, a gurney with a laser at his crotch or something. Yeah. And I that kind yeah. of bums me out too. I don't know. I guess I don't. I guess what I'm learning here is that I uh-huh. never had a solid grasp about what Rachel Ghoul was about. But I liked the yeah. the gravitas and the mystery. And the more mm-hmm. I learn about him, the less I find him interesting. <laughs> I think that there would be a way to do a cool story of explaining the Lazarus Pit. And I wouldn't want to explain how it works. I would like to keep it like a religious mystery sure. and focus on his history. And how old he is, and how he's destroyed civilizations in the past. Like there'd be a way to weave together the the two versions. You know, the Batman Begins version, and then this eco terrorist version. Yeah, there is. There's, def- there's definitely a through line. There, they have definitely done that stuff uh, in the past. They, they've gone into the history of him over oh, okay. the six hundred years. I don't know if if exactly <clears throat> what you're talking about has been done, but they've definitely uh, uh, dipped into that stuff in the comics. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah, I don't. It's 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 tough to talk about this episode because I I feel like we're both kind of down on it. Yeah, uh, yeah. I um, I thought the animation in spots was was really nice. I didn't think the animation in the first half was very good. It felt kind of stiff. Yeah, and the second one felt a lot slicker. Like a lot of those it's, fights in the first half felt really really stiff and choppy. Yeah, I, th- I thought it was the same animation house that did both episodes, but I could be wrong. It might be. I mean, it, it wouldn't surprise yeah. me, but it's just, it, for whatever reason, I right. honestly, this is going to sound weird, but I, I think it might have been different places. And the reason I'm mm-hmm. going to say this is because 
uh, I noticed that Talia loses a couple cup sizes in the second half. <laughs> I, not that I was looking for this, but she was drawn in the first half as like excessively busty. Yeah. To a point where I was like, I don't, I don't feel like they usually draw these characters like this. And then in the second mm-hmm. half, she seemed much more on model for like the Bruce Tim style. Yeah, so, the Bruce Tim style is a girl that has B cups or A cups, like very thin with larger hips. Right. And yeah, uh, she was definitely busty in the first one. Yeah. And so I, I feel like they must have used two different groups for the first half and the second half. And it just, yeah, yeah. it just, the first half, I the one thing I really enjoyed, and uh, uh, not to jump right to the what would you draw part, but may as well, I guess. I really liked that Panther fight. And I think uh-huh. that would be a lot of fun to draw because the way that they were handling that stuff with with in the dark room with the lighting and the Black Panther, yeah, uh, I think that would be really cool. That would be that would be a lot of fun to try and do. <laughs> so, kind of a side story here. Um, I'm doing a book with uh, my friend Blake Northcott for Catwoman. Mm-hmm. It's just two issues. It's dream- being drawn by this artist, uh, Kian Torme or Torme Torme. We'll go Torme, um, and. Uh, the idea is that Catwoman, um, to get back to her roots, is in a South American jungle trying to help these villagers who, like, blood diamond type of scenario, right? Mm-hmm. And there's this legendary cat that's roaming the rainforest, um, and it's mostly killing the bad guys, which is convenient. And there's this little kid with the cat, and uh, Bar- um, Catwoman sort of meets up with them. So it's like you have this giant female black panther you have a six-year-old who's riding on top of the cat like he-man style mm-hmm. and then you have catwoman who's like loving this because it's like gets her back to her roots you got three strong female characters all together you know taking down the bad guys or whatever um and i uh, did two covers and i drew this um it's i forget uh i think it's a black jaguar it's a certain type of jaguar that does exist in south america and um oh is it a leopard i forget but it's so black that it basically reads as a panther sure if it's not Anyway, so um, the artist drew this thing like three stories tall. <laughs> Ken, if you're listening to this, I mean, I've sort of mentioned this to him already, and I'm not really in charge of it. It's sort of Blake's baby. I was kind of just like getting it started and giving her ideas, and she read the script and all that. So it went from this like large jungle cat that a six-year-old could ride, mm-hmm. which would maybe it's a little larger than in real life. And, but the way the artist drew it, it's like, I'm not even lying, it's three stories tall. Because if you if Catwoman stood up and she's five feet tall, this thing has got to be at least two stories. We'll call it that. So I wrote into the uh, the team and I'm like, hey, it looks great. You know, Keen did a great job drawing it and he's, he's he really is amazing. But I wasn't sure uh, who gave him the note to draw the cat so huge. And I seemed to be the only one that cared <laughs> about it. And the uh, the stuff I got back was, well, it's a comic, so who cares? Mm-hmm. And then the editor says, well, maybe the cat's superpowers is it can grow really large. And I'm like, okay, but is that in the script anywhere else? Like, am I the only one noticing how large this fucking cat is now? See, that's the and, uh, that's the note I would give as the artist because I wouldn't want to redraw it. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So uh, I don't know how it's going to go. I don't even know if readers will care. That's the kind of thing that would bother me, but I'm not the um, prospective audience for most comics i guess yeah. i don't know <laughs> yeah i don't know i guess yeah it depends how it plays in the in the book uh so is the cat like if if catwoman was standing next to the cat would she uh-huh. is she, is it taller than her entire person oh yeah her head would hit the bottom of its stomach what yeah like it is that's like a, a bus that's a 
big cat. I thought you were yeah. exaggerating a little bit. No. But- no. All right. Well. If you do the perspective, like if you and I, you know, I love perspective, mm-hmm. and I a few panels where she's standing near the cat. If you judge by where everything is, this cat is, <laughs> it's like the size of a huge elephant. <laughs> cool. Sure. Yeah, and I feel like that's kind of like you know, it's one thing to have the bad guy uh, go, oh, this is cat in the forest, it's killing my men. We have to go down there and take care of it. You know, send a couple guys to go shoot it. Well, if he knew the thing was the size of an elephant, you think he'd have more of a story about it. Yeah. Like, what the fuck? So, Did the earth open up and the Lazarus pit just created this giant bus cat? Well, I guess <laughs> if it's I guess if it's like supposed to be this legendary ancient cat, it would right. you could go like, all right, well maybe like a saber toothed tiger it's a little bit bigger than a saber toothed tiger kind of thing. That would make yeah, sense. Exactly. Sure. You could have yeah, if we had room in the story to talk about you know, well let's address why this thing is so huge. Is it if it has mystical powers, why don't we explain that? And I don't think that there's <laughs> – I don't know. We'll have to see. I haven't read the final draft yet, so maybe um, Blake came up with some dialogue to explain it away. But, um, yeah, watching this leopard scene or this panther scene or whatever it was made me think about that. <laughs> yeah, I guess – I yeah, it's going to have to depend on how it plays out because if it's like just a, a, a cat the size of a Mack truck that nobody's really addressing the fact that there's this gigantic right. cat there. But if it's like believably bigger – you know, like mm-hmm. believably uh, 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 ancient cat bigger. Um, yeah, yeah. So well, who knows? We'll see. Yeah. Oh, so the other funny. So you're thing saying is, too- is you're saying don't buy it when it comes out? Is what you're saying? <laughs> no, no, no. I'm not. I'm not saying that at all. I mean, I got to use the original Catwoman um, costume from the animated series in it. Oh, sweet. Um, we had to do covers. Well, I had to do covers earlier on for solicitations. So I was trying to figure out like which which Batwoman costume do I use. And because it's a standalone story, I'm like, well, why don't I use the gray and black one from uh, the animated series? Because I think that one's like my favorite anyway. Sure. Um, yeah. And uh, so I threw that in there. So it's cool. I mean, it is, it is a standalone story. Um, I think it's coming out in a few months. I don't know exactly. Oh, excellent. I should know this stuff. But I got all confused about the whole project when I saw how large the cat was. <laughs> <laughs> like, where am I? You know, the other funny bit of it, too, is uh, in the story I wrote in, well, I had uh, Blake write in a Lamborghini Countach, mm-hmm. um, which is, you know, that awesome car from the 80s. And uh, there's a whole talking heads scene where the two characters are inside the Countach talking. And the artist complained to me. He's like, man, this uh, car has no headspace. So I don't know how to draw this so that you could fit all these word balloons inside. And I'm thinking, dude, it's a comic. Don't draw the top of the car. Just put a bunch of word balloons. Like, there's a million solutions for this. And I thought, wait a minute, suddenly you're interested about, like, size and relationship to objects, and here you are drawing a cat that's, like, two stories tall. Well, I mean, on the other hand, suddenly you're like, oh, it doesn't matter. It's a comic book. Make the top of the car 30 feet high. It doesn't matter. (laughs) That is not what I meant. (laughs) Also, I mean, you know, the Lamborghini Countach, that car that's great in the South American jungles? It's it's paved. It's like oh, he's see. got a uh, okay. a resort kind of a drug lord type of guy. I mean, I would be happy if it was a Countach just tearing through the jungle with not making yeah. any with like chains on the wheels or something. That would be fun. That's true. Like cutting all of the trees with its pointy nose. Yeah, there just, you go. The car is so yeah. awesomely designed. <laughs> yeah. Um. What would I draw? I would draw. Uh, maybe the sword fight. Batman. <laughs> yeah. Um, it was funny when I was doing Curse of White Knight. I do have a sword fight in the finale, and I wasn't sure if I should get have Bruce without a shirt on or Azrael. <laughs> you know, the idea of like these guys are broken down to their bare essence, and they're still hacking it out. Like, mm-hmm. It's not just because we want to see Batman's awesome six pack, but I thought there might be a storytelling um, 
benefit to him not having a shirt on or something like that. But in the end, I just had him ditch, ditch the cape. Ditch, yeah, ditch the cape. Yeah. Yeah, and I mean, also, you can't top Neil Adams drawing Batman without a shirt on covered in chest hair. <laughs> yeah. Did he have chest hair? In the comic, he does, yeah. In, in, in the, in the huh. show, he does not. Apparently, chest hair it's... is too difficult to animate. Yeah, who wants to be bothered with all that? Yeah, I, I, I believe it. You know, I honestly, um, I'm not fully thrilled with how I drew the final fight scene in my book. Mm-hmm. I think I was just running out of gas and tired. You know, and I had that uh, rapier built, so I had an actual sword in my studio so I could see how the swept hilt looks from different angles. Like, I was doing all the proper setup for this whole thing. And you needed and to make sure the, you need to make sure you that? used it. You need to make sure you used it just in case the IRS called you. Yeah, no, I definitely did, but I feel <laughs> like I, as I go through these old Zorro comics, I can see, like, man, these sword fights are done so much better than the way I drew them. Like, I'm looking back at old panels, like, oh, man, I, I, I think I want to do another sword fight scene and get it right this time, because I'm just not happy with, with what I did. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, if I, if I wanted to draw something in this episode, it would be the sword fight, yeah. just so I could redeem myself from the finale of Curse of the White Did Knight. you feel like you, you drew it too stiff, or it wasn't, you weren't getting the motion <sighs> across, or... Yeah, I feel like um, it's a good question. Um, wish I knew how to answer that. I feel like the best sword fight scenes in comics have minimal detail sure. in the background. If you do a lot of detail, it just loses the um, the impact of the, a slash of a sword. Mm. But you don't want you don't want zero backgrounds either. Um, and uh, there are some panels where the the hilt of the sword looks really goopy. I feel like I could have put the camera in a better place to show the full swing of the sword, stuff like that. Yeah, yeah. Um, I have a lot of little nitpicks and stuff. And you know, it doesn't help that you know Azrael has a two-handed um, claymore, basically, and Bruce has two rapiers. Mm. Um, you know, and I even took fencing lessons for eight weeks just to learn how to sword fight a little bit mm. and how characters stand and. I ended up redrawing some stuff because I, sorry, this is getting long-winded. Um, <laughs> I drew some stuff with Edmund Wayne back in the day where it looked good on a comic book panel, but his stance was totally not correct to how you would use a sword like that. Yeah, yeah. And I think I just got in my own head and I just well, I mean, had too much going on. Maybe he has some sort of magical sword fighting power that allows him to fight well while standing <laughs> that way. Yeah. Hey, you know what? If it's in the land of magical giant cats, then sure, sure. I guess anything goes. Um, you know, I actually wanted to ask you, uh, did you? Because I believe the last issue of White of Curse of the White Knight came out after they started shutting down stores because of the. It was the. the it was. It came out the final day, uh, the last Wednesday. The shops were open. Oh, okay. My book did you? Did you up. find, or no, did you find or notice that there was any impact on the reception, or maybe even? I mean, I guess it doesn't impact sales because the sales are two comic stores not from people buying the books it's themselves yeah um but did yeah you- uh, it's too early to check the numbers on that issue maybe they're out now i'm not sure yet uh, so i don't know exactly how much the sales were um but i did notice you know the oxygen in the room was taken out sure, the next sure. day by you know so usually i get a bunch of youtube reviews that i can look at and see if people like it or not and I noticed that they were noticeably absent because I think people just had other things going on. Right, right. Understandably, yeah, yeah. It's yeah. I, I'm, I'm, I'm curious to. I, you're the only person I know personally who had a book come out in that weird gray zone. And obviously, yeah. it's not the most important thing in the world, given what else is no. going on. But I was curious to, as to whether or not 
it, it's it seemed it was it it was in my it was on my mind because it was the final issue, and mm-hmm. it's like it, it's it. I wonder if it felt anticlimactic to be building up to this final issue and then kind of be like, ah, we've got other real yeah. world stuff going on. We'll come back to this maybe when yeah. the trade comes out. So, you know, I looked at all the reviews. There's a comic site called Comic Book Roundup, which I think I mentioned before. And generally, my reviews come in between like 88 to a 90%. Mm-hmm. It takes all these website reviews and it shuffles them in. And I'm pretty consistently getting like a B plus to an A minus rating, which mm-hmm. I'm really happy with. Um, however, I noticed that there was a dip in the final issue. And I think it's down to some of my, my readers loved it. They think it's like, such a good sequel to the first one they still think it's like an all-time batman story Mm -hmm. and they're not bothered that bruce is going to jail or that he's not really a wayne or all this stuff like they they get what i was going for and then you have another type of customer that just doesn't see what the big deal is about what bruce's ancestors did sure 300 years ago and I knew that was going to happen because I know that you and I were talking about this. Yes, like, <laughs> quite a bit. Because <laughs> yeah. like, you were like, how, is it, how does it really matter? I mean, what legal recourse? It's like, here's the equivalent. Anderson Cooper is a giant celebrity or whatever in New York City, right? Mm-hmm. He is a Vanderbilt. So think of him as Bruce Wayne in a way. Let's say that uh, Anderson Cooper owned a bunch of buildings and he was like this, the prince of New York City in a lot of ways. And suddenly he found out that his great-great-great-great-great-great-great-grandfather murdered somebody in the 1600s and took uh, took over their identity so that Anderson Cooper is not actually a Vanderbilt nor are any of the six generations leading up to him who would really care right. at that point yeah. like would that make the news sure absolutely that's an interesting story but would someone like who would take him to court what, what would happen to his fortune like what do you even do at that point obviously it's past uh, um, you have to wait for, for I forget what it's called um statute of limitations has to have some effect on this like i have no idea and you and i were talking about this when i was writing batman and i finally came up with the the idea of like well forget about all that stuff i think it would really bother bruce wayne Mm -hmm. um and i do really believe that but a lot of my readers did not get why that was such a big deal so i don't think that they like the ending of curse as much yeah but some of my readers really did get that and they liked it a lot so yeah yeah, i I, I I always thought the key to making that stuff work was just filtering as much of it as you could through Asriel and just making it seem like, like to Asriel that shit would matter. Absolutely. Like he's a, he's an insane person who's being driven by quote unquote God to, to reclaim his birthright that, you know, uh, that, that makes sense as to be a drive for him. But yeah, finding, Mm -hmm. finding a reason for Bruce to really care um, is tricky. And I think ultimately the uh, more or less what he finds out at the end that he's, He's he's more he's more than what what his name is et cetera et cetera is is the yeah. is the best way to uh, to wrap that up yeah yeah I mean I know I was reaching I was really pushing for a, a lot you know I know other writers have taken away ba- taken away Bruce Wayne and they ask is Batman still Batman and then other writers have taken away his fortune they've you know done other things to make you ask the question is he still Batman and what I tried to do is take away him being a Wayne at all and everything that he has used to become Batman is basically stolen. Mm-hmm. And what would that do to him? So if you're the type of reader that doesn't enjoy reading stories from the 1600s, <laughs> you're not going to love this book. Right. If you also don't care 
about Bruce not being a Wayne because it has to do with something that happens in the 1600s, again, you're not going to care. Mm-hmm. And at the very end of it, you're going to see Bruce Wayne go to jail, yes. which is also kind of a bummer. <laughs> <laughs> so I, I, honestly, I'm surprised my reviews were as high as they were, um, considering I was asking readers really to accept a lot. Mm. Um, yeah, but I did notice that they dipped, and I've been sort of trying to put together in my head not what went wrong, because I think I did a good job pushing the kind of story I tried to push, whether or not it's for everybody. Yeah. You know? And I mean, honestly, I've always thought that that's the most important thing. Just tell the story you want to tell, and people are going to be with yeah. you. Some people aren't. You know, yeah. if, if, if write the story, tell the story that you want to tell, that, that is of the book that you want to see, and there are going to be people who, who follow you on that, yeah. on that journey. Yeah, totally. Yeah, and you, know, you look at like these famous directors. We were talking about David Finch the other day, and uh, all these great David Finch, Fincher movies. Fincher, Sorry. yeah. David Sorry, David Fincher. Finch is the comic book artist. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> um, and we were. T- I was talking about the Social Network, which mm-hmm. I didn't love, and uh, it's just I thought it was probably amazingly well done, but it's just not my type of story. Sure. Um, but I thought, like, man, David Fincher is like a director's director. Um, he tells the type of stories that he wants to do. It's usually like a small contained universe mm-hmm. where there's like a murder or a serial killer or something. You don't have a ton of characters and it keeps a very narrow focus. And I thought, well, would he want to be the next um, Chris Nolan? Would he want to be the next Steven Spielberg? Right. Or is he happy with how he's carved out this like perfect little niche? Like he's more about the art than he is about the headlines. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I you know, when it comes to that stuff, I always think about you know, the the modern thing that that happens now, and I guess it's kind of happened forever, but it seems to be more noticeable now cuz every 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 movie is a, is a comic book movie, so it gets a lot of press, but um or yeah. some other franchise. But I've noticed in the last like 15 years this trend of uh someone does one pretty good pretty good to really good indie movie. And then all of a sudden, they're directing the next Marvel movie. Um, right. Most notably, I remember, uh, most notably, the guy who directed Chronicle doing Fantastic Four. And there was <laughs> another one where the guy, uh, this guy named David Slade, I think his name was, he directed uh, a movie called Hard Candy, which is a really cool movie. And he ended up doing Wolverine Origins, which is Fantastic Four, Wolverine Origins, not great movies. And yeah. you, fu- you see these two kind of indie directors who kind of have this this uh they're developing this style and this voice thrust into this big machine and some of them can't hang and i'm not saying that as a bad thing because they're not all meant to and i always think of i always think of david lynch where uh david lynch did a racer head and i think i can't remember if he did another movie before he did dune but he did a racer head which is this really you know dark twisted weird nightmare of a movie that is not a mainstream movie by any imagine any stretch of the imagination, and then he does Dune, which is uh, a big budget sci-fi adaptation, which is still pretty weird. But it's like it's a it's a studio movie. There's lots of moving parts involved, um, and it's it, it was kind of a big deal. And the whole experience soured him on doing that kind of stuff ever again. And mm-hmm. if it wasn't for that he might not have realized the stuff that he really liked to do, which ended up turning him into the David Lynch that everybody knows. Cause the movie he did immediately after that was blue velvet, which is a lot more in the vein of, uh, 
right. eraser head. And that's sort of you know, been the world that he lives in ever since. And some people yeah. just, you know, they aren't made to do sir, uh, everything. Yeah, you're not. You might, So if David Fincher, I'm just going to make some fictional assumptions here. Mm-hmm. Uh, let's just say, you know, he. I think he's a brilliant storyteller. Yeah. He's a master of his craft, sound, design, like everything. I mean, he's got it all. If he doesn't do tentpole movies, it might be because... He doesn't want to deal with the politics. Sure. Maybe it's just a bridge too far. He just doesn't want to be making headlines like that. He'd rather do smaller projects with Ben Affleck, like Gone Girl, and really control all of the knobs and dials rather than have the suits come in and tank his vision. Yeah. Even if that means less money, less notoriety, you know, that's just maybe not what's important to him. Yeah, and I mean, you know? even a similar thing, I assume, a similar thing happened to him, where he did a bunch of music right. videos, and then he did Alien 3, which is a, yeah. a big-budget franchise movie that ended up you know, yeah. being a terrible experience for him and flopped. And then after that, he, the next movie he does after that is The Game, which is, yeah. you know... Again, it's it's he he's weird. I mean, not, this is not a movie podcast, but he's an interesting case because he's always working with big name actors. But it is yeah. a he does tell smaller stories. Yeah, sometimes I play this game where I think, what if if David Fincher uh, was a comic book creator? What books would he be doing? Would he be a DC? Marvel guy, or would he be doing image stuff, or would he be doing? I mean, I guess is he'd be doing crime comics, uh, yeah, probably an image. And I look at Steven Spielberg, and I'm like, what kind of books would he be doing? And what kind of? You know, Michael Bay for sure would be doing X Men. Yeah, <laughs> you know, he would be doing he would be doing X Men in the '90s, is what Michael Bay would be. Yeah, doing. Yes. the biggest, splashiest, like most action filled. Like, that's what he would want to do. And Steven Spielberg would be doing like, you know, expensive Vertigo. Pr- books where he gets a huge budget to do slightly um i don't know why do you even peg what steven spielberg even is these days <laughs> yeah yeah i because i was gonna say i would see fincher doing a vertigo vertigo books like That's seven true, yeah. seven feels like a vertigo book fight club feels like a vertigo book yeah you know that, that feels like his wheelhouse but uh we'll cover that yeah. in the next episode of what comics would these directors draw or write yeah, my head's all over the place. This podcast, I apologize. <laughs> no, it's all right. Yeah, <laughs> I mean, you know, it's I'm uh, not to pull it back into the episode. I am a little <laughs> surprised that we didn't have more to talk about here because we were both fairly underwhelmed by it. And it's not like nothing yeah. happens; like arguably, too much happens. And yeah. it's uh, if if we want to get into ratings on this, I would. Uh, I don't want to. I feel bad giving it a two. Yeah, but I feel Me like too. that's kind of where my head's at on this yeah i'm at a two or a three yeah i mean and it gets points it's beautiful and it's yeah it's, it pisses me off that they wasted a lot of money on these amazing animation sequences for a, a script that just was not there yeah i mean like the the action stuff is great especially in the second half like that escape the escape from uh the lazarus pit with batman and robin is cool yeah. um you know even that sword fight at the end is cool uh, the explosions and everything at the at the compound are neat, <coughs> but yeah. yeah, it's just yeah, yeah, it's not. It doesn't establish Rachel Ghoul as as a villain that I am really interested to see again. All right. Well, I think the next there's at least two more, at least one more. He's in there's, which has um the the western one. Yeah, his face. there's there's one with Jonah Hex, right? Jonah Hex. Yep. Is Batman even and, in that? 
Yeah, he's a bookend. Oh, I see. Okay. And I think there's another one with Rachel Ghoul. Uh, I could be wrong, actually. I don't know. <laughs> well, yeah. you know, but in general, it drives me crazy when the script is half faked on anything, including movies. I'm sorry to bring it back into movies, <laughs> <laughs> but it drives me nuts that like one single shot in Picard costs more money than the entire script put together. And the script is the very backbone that's going to drive the rest of the endeavor. Mm-hmm. It's just so insane to me. Like, it's so easy to fix scripts in a way. It's just moving words around. When you get to the level where you're doing CGI and explosions everywhere, it's like, that is like a hundred times more expensive than fixing the script. And at that point, you can't fucking fix much. Right. I mean, maybe a little bit in the editing room, but it just blows my mind that we spend so much on the effects and so little on getting the script right. Yeah. But, you know, if making movies is anything like making comics... You've got politics to deal with. You've got deadlines. You know, you've got sometimes you don't have enough oversight accidentally. Things kind of slip through and everyone's too busy to notice that it sucks. Pretty soon you have animation coming back and it looks good. And you're like, all right, Rachel Ghoul, I guess this is a thing, you know? Yeah. Well, you know, it's funny. I've been actually thinking about that quite a bit lately in terms of I don't think making movies is quite like making comics, but I think it's probably closer to uh, making comics is probably closer to making TV shows. And yeah. Okay. Because you know, I, I, I a, a, a friend of mine always gets pissed off at TV shows because he's like, "Why don't they write the entire thing before they shoot it?" And it's like, well, mm-hmm. it's just the the system isn't made to do that. It's it's an evolving process, and sometimes <laughs> right. you kind of have to, you know, you, you go with what you got. And mm-hmm. I was thinking about that in reference to the book that I'm writing and and, and drawing, and I was thinking, man, I don't know how monthly comic writers don't aren't like either a nail it right away the first time mm-hmm. or come away from each story arc going ugh god i wish i had done things differently because right. my book my my book is essentially it's a graphic novel it's a set, it's five issues worth of comics and mm-hmm. i've got a lot of stuff that ended up in the the first chapter that I didn't know I needed until I would finished writing the second one, you know, like character motivations change and everything. And I, certain mm-hmm. things kind of, uh, uh, become more clear to me. Same thing. I just finished writing the third chapter and I feel the same way where I was like, you know, this motivation doesn't really work. So I think I'm going to have to go back and change what's going on in the second one. Mm-hmm. And right. if you're doing a monthly book, if you, by the time you get to the third script, the first two mm-hmm. issues are probably already drawn. Yeah. And so it's really, unless you're just changing dialogue, it's really mm-hmm. different. It's really difficult to have those sort of late game revelations and go back and, and fix things so that they, they, they flow smoother. Right. Yeah. I mean, I've done that a lot too. Um, with curse, we had this whole backstory issue two started out with, uh, Edmund and Bacar and, uh, Edmund is being trained as they travel to the new world. And um, there was a line I put in there that wasn't in the first few drafts where Bakar expects to get half the land and Edmund says this is something he's not willing to grant. Mm -hmm. And without that line, that whole sequence doesn't have as much weight because it's not clear how Edmund feels about Bakar trying to take half his land. And it seems so obvious. Like I did have to go back in issue five or issue six, go back into issue two and add that line. Um, 
and I, I don't think I told you about it. And when you read the final draft, you're like, oh, that line is actually super important. Yeah. <laughs> Without that line, the motivation, like, there's a lot that's left unclear if you cut that out. Yeah. And I yeah. think about how many things I've saved as they've gone out the door. Like, right before printing, added a, a line of dialogue here that covers up a lot of plot holes or whatever it is. Yeah. And I mean, luckily, yeah. that's something you can just cover with a line of dialogue. But I mean, if you get to the yeah. point where you're like, oh, shit, I need, I need a page worth of this stuff that wasn't in the first issue. You either yeah. got to cover your ass later on and figure out a way how to explain it, or you just got to, you know, eat shit. Right. Yeah, and I think that when you're doing your own book like you and I are, we're in the rare position where we, we lord over all of this, and yeah. we can see everything. And we know it really is a, a labor of love because there's so few cooks in the kitchen. Just you, your letterer. For me, it's my letterer, my my colorist or whatever. Mm-hmm. Oh, so you have a colorist too. I'm sorry. Yeah. Um, but I feel like when I see other comic book writers worth work having to like juggle five scripts a month, mm. like, you know, your editor calls in the morning. Oh, Hey, we need you to take a look at this scene. Cause we need X, Y, and Z by the end of the day go. And you're like, Oh shit. So you put down the whiteboard that has all your notes of your current project, grab the book that you thought you just finished. Try to f- remember what the fuck you were trying to say in this book. Right. Do what you think the editor is, is, is saying. And like, okay, I hope that's good. And you send it out the door and you focus back on what you were originally doing. But you're doing that with five different projects. Yeah, I think that when you pass the baton so often like that, things are going to fall through. And the benefit that you and I have is there is no ha- passing of the baton. You know, the writer and the artist are the same person, so very little is going to get lost. So you and I can really fine tweak those dials, like uh, traditional comic book writers just can't. Mm. You know, arguably sometimes too much. Because I've yeah, I've also <laughs> been there. I've also been there too, where I've been I uh, I've been writing something and I've been staring at the same two sentences yeah. for like three hours figuring out exactly how to word them and which 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 order they should come in and which word should come first in order to express the the thought the way that i want it to come out yeah that's the thing is that the, the lesson i've learned too is whatever you put down on, in the comic people are going to get 80 percent of it at most mm-hmm. if you're lucky there's tons of stuff that they're going to be so overwhelmed by your drawing that they're not going to pay attention to the dialogue or they're going to be so into the dialogue they're going to miss something in the drawing it's just it's not a perfect um, transition. It's not a perfect handoff. Right. You know, like even with movies and songs, like there's always shit. Even your favorite movies, there's stuff that you miss. And it's not till decades later. You're like, oh, my God, that's amazing. You know, oh, totally, if the yeah. director came in and be like, this was your favorite movie. You didn't know I was doing that. Like, how yeah. dare you say you're my biggest fan? Like you just inevitably there's always stuff that you're going to miss. Do you remember when everybody's mind was blown when that first person discovered the thing in Jurassic Park? where he has to tie the two female ends of the seatbelts together in order to secure himself. And then they were like, oh, my God, that's what happens with the dinosaurs, too. This movie's fucking... That was like the first movie internet meme I remember, and it blew everybody's mind. Yeah. And I'm sure Spielberg was like, yeah, obviously. Yeah. How did you miss that? It's funny, there's... There's a few, uh, I'm watching a lot of YouTube channels that go over movies and talk about how, how brilliant directors like David Fincher are. And it, uh, it was going over Steven Spielberg and talking about a scene in uh, Minority Report mm-hmm. where he, where Bruce, uh, sorry, uh, Tom Cruise and Colin Farrell, Firth, Colin Farrell, <laughs> thank you, are talking to each other. And they're like one side of the screen and you have Farrell on the other side of the scene. And um, 
they're just the, the visually what it's just saying is they each are this is weighing one character against another the audience is literally in the middle mm-hmm. and in this shot they also have the guy with the blonde hair i forget his name he's like you're looking at the back of his head and he's splitting the screen and the uh youtube guy is talking about why this is such an important shot and this is what it's trying to tell you and he's reading into it way too much mm-hmm. where i feel like even spielberg is going to be like um no actually i wish i didn't have the back of the guy's head right there that's not at all what i was intending (laughs) so some of the stuff that they experts interpret is just them reading into it too much but they do say a lot of uh, important things that are right on in a lot of cases which is why if i was ever in that situation i think i would be one of those creators who just doesn't really get into things because if someone comes at me with one of those things be like is it is it true that you intended this image to represent the weightiness of the situation and blah 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 and be like (laughs) i mean i mean i let the work speak for itself you know there's uh, uh my favorite show the the prisoner there's uh, uh an episode where they're having a uh, an art contest in the in the village and mm-hmm. uh everybody else draws portraits of the warden number number 2 and uh the main character number 6 makes this uh abstract thing and the the judges come over and they just lose their minds over it and they're like yeah. what's the meaning of it and he's like the meaning is what it is and they're like oh my god the meaning <laughs> is what it is it's brilliant and it's like that's how yeah. I feel about that stuff. Where unless unless they're coming out and being like, obviously this is a uh, metaphor for why Nazis should rule the planet, right? Then I would step in. <laughs> but as yeah. long as it's like that kind of stuff, I'm like, yeah, yeah, dude, kick it around, kick the tires on yeah. it, do whatever you want with it. You know, a nice visual way to describe this argument would be when you see ca- uh, comic book panels broken down and artists will draw on it how they're intending to lead the eye. Mm-hmm. So, for example, if you have a character looking to the left, that's obviously where the reader is going to be looking as well. Mm-hmm. Or if the character on the left is holding a sword and the sword is pointing to the ground at an object, you know, there's interesting ways that you can triangulate and sort of lead people through your scene. Yeah. Um, but there's a lot of times people will dismiss the lines that are not conducive to the design at all. Like, for example, there was a Mignola panel once, and I saw this breakdown about why you know, Mike Mignola is brilliant. And, you know, hash, I mean, side note, I do think he's brilliant. Mm. But in this one panel, um, they explain how this is what he's trying to do. This is how he's leading your eye. And they were taking in all the directional lines, like fences, trees, branches, and swords that were pointing to the point of the panel. But they were ignoring all of the branches and swords that were pointing away from it. Right. Um, and worst of all is one of these swords was creating a really bad tangent that was totally, <laughs> and it was almost like looking at a weather map when you see like cold fronts and warm fronts moving in. And I feel like artists really try to plan where the eye is moving, but inevitably you're going to have a stray sword or an angle somewhere that's going to, some reader is going to see that first and not be down at all with the way you're trying to lead their eye. Right. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. You can, <laughs> we don't have to get into specifics, but sometimes people can read those things the wrong way. Um, yeah, sorry. This is getting really deep. Yeah, that's all right. Well, I didn't well, think we get into it with this episode. We'll, we'll pull out of pull ourselves out of the Lazarus pit of of deep dive okay. of deep dive comic book theory here. And uh, yeah, so I uh, you are you also a two on this one? I'm a two. Yeah, uh, and I, one more thing, I do want to suggest we should do a podcast one day and talk about how comics are like movies and how they're not like movies. Sure. Yeah, that'd be I think fun. That would be fun to talk about. Yeah, absolutely. Um, well, we can do that. Maybe after we finish the season or something, we'll do it as one of those uh, mid, yeah. mid... When the uh, pandemic is over, it'd be nice to have visuals to be able to like point to what we're talking about. Oh, yeah. That'd um, be fun, too. Do like a... If there's a, ever a way to do that. Yeah, we absolutely could do that, I think. 
<laughs> we absolutely could do that, I think. Uh, <laughs> Assuming we all survive. <laughs> right. But yeah, so that's going to do it for us for uh, uh, Demon's Quest Part 1 and 2. <laughs> I can I keep wanting to say Demon's Head, but it's Demon's Quest. <laughs> uh, next time, we are going to be doing uh, Fire from Olympus and Read My Lips. So thank you guys for checking mm-hmm. this out. If you like it, give us a rating or review on iTunes. Uh, hit us up on... What are we on? We're on Twitter. That's what we're on. I, I'm sorry. My mind went blank. Uh, at Badass Podcast, that's B-A-T-T-A-S-S Podcast. If you want to shoot us an email, you can do that at uh, badasspodcast at gmail.com. It's B-A-T-T-A-S-S Podcast at gmail.com. Uh, thanks so much for checking it out. Thanks for coming on, Sean, as always. Thank you. Appreciate it. Thanks for dealing with my rambling. Sorry to start us off on the wrong foot with a joke that nobody got. That's all right. Nobody's listening now anyway. <laughs> <laughs> so we'll uh, we'll see you we'll see you next time guys thanks <laughs>